Chapter Twelve of Cut by the County or Grace Darnell by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Power of Hell Overclouds Thy Understanding. As an old campaigner, Colonel Stukeley found no difficulty in awaking at any hour of the morning at which he wished to rise. He needed to victimize no servant who must rise still earlier to call him, nor did he require to have his courage stimulated by a cup of hot tea. He went to his bedroom directly the detective had retired to the servants' quarters, and he told himself as he lay down to rest that he would be astir at half-past four o'clock next morning, not with any idea of cub-hunting, but with the serious intention of getting an interview with Mrs. Jaker before detective or search warrant could reach her cottage. Before bidding Miss Darnell good-night, he had contrived to ascertain from that lady the exact situation of the cottage. It lay within a mile of the park gates, in a particularly lonely district, given over to agriculture. Half a dozen small farms had been rolled into one, and the homesteads belonging to them had been pulled down or turned into laborers' cottages. The Jaker's domicile was situated at the end of a long lane, just where the uttermost limit of cultivated land met the edge of a wild stretch of common. It had been a house in the time of the Stuarts, and it had a picturesque air even now, in the lowest stage of neglect and decay, the rotten and ragged thatch half-hidden under a goodly growth of weeds and grasses, the good old leaded lattices with hardly a whole pane among them. The Jakers were squatters rather than tenants, and would have been turned out neck and crop years ago had it not been for an easy-going landlord and the little peculiarities of Mrs. Jaker, who always had a baby at hand on the hour of any financial crisis. It was sometimes a baby that moment born, anon a baby that very morning dead. Living or dead, the baby was always ready for the emergency. It was Mrs. Jaker's ace of trumps. Having told himself that he should be astir at half-past four, the colonel woke a few minutes before the hour. He had scarcely sounded his repeater when the eight-day clock in the corridor chimed in with its four musical notes and then its four sonorous strokes upon the big bell. The colonel was up and in his bath within five minutes. Not a man he to yawn and loiter and think twice about leaving his pillow when there was business to be done. It was pitch dark as yet, it would hardly be light by the time he should arrive at Mrs. Jaker's cottage, but he calculated that a person of her condition would be an early riser, and he felt no compunction about knocking her up should she prove a slug a bed. He was bent upon seeing her before the detective arrived with a search warrant, so that in the event of her husband having obtained his plunder from Victor de Comelloc, the woman's mouth might be sealed as to the existence and whereabouts of that obnoxious Frenchman. My friend Penwern ignores these footmarks on the flower beds now that he has started on another track, the colonel thought as he walked briskly along the avenue under the cold October sky. Not very logical, that narrow sole and pointed heel could never have belonged to the boot of a rustic poacher, and yet those footmarks have to be accounted for somehow, and I am not at all clear that Grace's admirer is safe after the business. Before going downstairs, the colonel had tapped softly at his friend's door, and had questioned the night nurse. Her reply was more favorable than usual. The patient had spent a quieter night, the fever was a little less intense, the delirium less violent. All this was hopeful. There were patches of grey in the eastern sky by the time the colonel came to the end of the long, muddy lane and entered Mrs. Jaker's neglected garden. The gate hung loose upon broken hinges, and several of its rails had been ruthlessly plucked off to serve for firewood. The palings were in the same condition and afforded free access to vagabond swine. When Mrs. Jaker was asked why she did not keep her garden tidy, she replied that tidiness was impossible while the pigs came in and uprooted everything, but when she was asked why she and her husband did not patch up the palings and keep the pigs out, Mrs. Jaker became desperate and asked if pails dropped from the skies and if Providence showered nails and hammers into poor people's laps. For her part, she had neither wood nor nails nor hammer, and as for her landlord, he would see them all dead before he would do anything for them. This could scarcely be considered strange, inasmuch as they did nothing for him in the shape of rent. Albeit the sky was grey in the east, and a faint admixture of silvery light glorified the undulating lines of hill and woodland, Mrs. Jaker had not yet left her pillow when the colonel knocked with his stout oat stick at the cottage door. She put her head out of an upstair window presently, however, and on hearing that he had particular business with her, promised to be down in ten minutes. 
So the colonel strolled up and down the dreary little garden, with its stagnant puddles and depressed corners, and its ragged regiment of barren cabbage stalks, and seeing at least half an acre of ground given over to desolation, he wondered how it was that the country poor made so little of their opportunities. The cottage door opened while he stood at gaze above the cabbage stalks, and he was admitted to the Jaker abode. Mrs. Jaker's toilet was of the briefest, and the colonel could not help suspecting that she had slept in her gown. A swarm of healthy, handsome children, all in the last stage of rags and dirt, were squatting and scrambling about the wide hearth, which had evidently belonged to the farmhouse kitchen. The few sticks of furniture were all in a ruinous condition, and it was not without careful selection that Mrs. Jaker found a chair which she could venture to offer to her guest. When he had seated himself, she knelt on the hearth and lighted a fire of sticks and turf, which made a cheerful flare of light amidst the grayness of the early morning. While she was doing this, she turned her head now and then, and looked timidly and interrogatively at the colonel. She was scared by the appearance of a stranger at this unwanted hour, but she was accustomed to be visited from time to time by the gentry who came to remonstrate her upon her own and her husband's misdoings. "'You had a stranger here last night, Mrs. Jaker,' began the colonel. "'Yes, sir, there was a person here.' "'Exactly. I know all about him and what passed.' You have not heard the last of that person and his inquiries. It would have been wiser if you had told him the truth about that money which is to pay your husband's passage to Canada and set you all up in a new country. It ought to buy him a pretty little farm out yonder. Mrs. Jaker paled at the speech, and a frightened look came into those mild blue eyes of hers, eyes which were apt to mislead strangers as to her character. Fortune, sir, she faltered, my poor husband had nothing but the ten pounds he won at the races. Indeed, then how come he to spend nearly ten pounds with the old woman at the shop? That would leave him very little for his passage money. Hereupon Mrs. Jaker, with tears in her eyes, called upon the heavens and those who dwelt therein to witness her truth. She had told the strange gentleman who called last night the truth, and nothing but the truth. If her husband had more money than those ten sovereigns won for him by the horse True Blue, which is a Wiltshire-bred horse and well known to him, or Jaker would never have backed him, she knew it not. "'Come now, Mrs. Jaker, this is all very foolish,' said the colonel in a friendly tone. Suppose I were to tell you that the person you saw last night is coming again this morning, and that in all probability he will take you off to prison. A man in Jaker's station doesn't come by four hundred pounds in banknotes without people asking questions, and as Jaker has made off, it will be for you to answer those questions. As the colonel uttered those words, four hundred pounds, he looked straight into Mrs. Jaker's face, and every line in that face, hardened as the woman was by long experience in lying, told him that the shot had gone home. Sir Alan's banknotes had by some means or other fallen into Jaker's hands. I am here as your friend, said the colonel. The man you saw last night is a member of the police, and you have nothing to hope for from him. I am here to help you if I can. A sum of four hundred pounds was stolen from Sir Alan Darnell's house last Tuesday night, and some of that money has been traced to your husband's possession. How did he come by it? Was it he who shot Sir Alan? No, sir, no. And again, Mrs. Jaker called upon the Almighty to witness her truth. You have lied to me once already when you told me Jaker won that money on the racecourse. How can I believe that you are not lying now? A ruffian entered my friend's house at midnight last Tuesday, stole a package of banknotes, and shot Sir Alan. The wound is likely to be fatal. Should Sir Alan die before the trial comes on, the burglar who shot him will stand charged with his murder. Your husband has had a taste of the law, and he knows that he can't shoot even a rabbit with impunity. He will find it a stiffer business now that he has shot a man. He never lifted a hand against Sir Alan. He hasn't been inside the park since the time he was falsely accused of stealing one of the deer three years ago. How did he come by that money, then? asked the colonel with a severe look. Almost unconsciously, he put on the voice and manner with which he had been wont to address rebellious sepoys in days gone by. Mrs. Jaker quailed before him. He found it, she faltered. Found it? Preposterous. People don't find money in hedges. He must have stolen those notes either from the cabinet in Lady Darnell's morning room, or else he stole them from the person of the man who first stole them. The thing may be a double robbery, but it is a robbery all the same, and you must know your husband to be a thief. No, sir. Again, Mrs. Jaker called upon the celestial powers. 
No, sir, my husband may have been a poacher, but he is not a thief, still less a murderer. Whatever money he had when he went away, he came by that money honestly. It was given to him as a free gift. That won't do, said the colonel. Just at this moment there ran through the old cottage an awful blood-freezing sound. It was a peal of laughter, long and loud and wild and shrill, such laughter as no one would expect to hear outside a lunatic asylum. Why, you have a maniac on the premises, exclaimed the colonel. How is that? The laughter died away, and then there came a wild snatch of song. Grevia Sherenton, Gambetta Toulon, Vive le sang, vive le sang. That was enough for Colonel Stukeley. Without waiting for leave from Mrs. Jaker, he made for the narrow staircase in a corner of the room, and rushed upstairs as if he had been mounting a breach. There were two rooms above. The door of the first was wide open. Mrs. Jaker's den, evidently. The door of the second was shut, and from within came another peal of laughter, almost demoniac in its wide shrillness. Otro toro, cried a voice as shrill as the laugh. Otro toro, Seville, the land of poetry and love, the land of song and dance, of bullfights and beautiful women. Spain, yes, Spain is the place for me. This time the words were English, spoken as only English lips can speak. Yet surely it was a Frenchman who sung that snatch of the Carmagnole just now, and it was a Frenchman of whom Colonel Stukeley was in quest. He opened the door and stood on the threshold, looking into the cottage bedchamber, a fair-sized room under a sloping roof, and lighted by a good old dormer window. The young man whom he had last seen, lying among the gorse and heather, was stretched on a pallet under the window. His head was propped up against the plastered wall, and his eyes were staring straight before him, while his thin hands played with the coverlet. Suddenly, while the colonel stood watching him, he crouched into a corner of the wall, and flung up his arms above his head, like a man recoiling from an enemy. "'The bull!' he shrieked. "'The bull is coming at me. Keep him off, keep him off!' No, it is not the bull. Worse, worse, ten times worse. It is her husband, in his winding-sheet, bedabbled with blood. I could never stand blood. Keep him off, keep him off. He fell back upon his wretched mattress, his face flushed to crimson, his pupils dilated, the eyeballs rolling restlessly, perspiration rolling in thick beads down his forehead and hollow cheeks. He was a victim to a disease which the colonel knew only too well, and had seen but too often among Anglo-Indian brandy-drinkers, men who had succumbed to the temptations of the climate, and who were sipping brandy and water all day long. He had seen just such paroxysms, and he knew that for the time being they meant raging madness. And if this unhappy wretch was Grace Darnell's plighted lover, and if Mr. Penwern came to the cottage by and by with a search warrant, he would see this young man and discover the real state of the case, arrest him, most likely, on suspicion, an arrest which would be followed by an inquiry that might bring Grace's name before the public. How could this wretched creature, maddened by drink, be expected to keep Miss Darnell's secret? The colonel looked at his watch. It was a quarter to seven. There was time yet to do something before the detective should appear with his warrant. Mrs. Jaker had followed him upstairs. She was standing at his elbow, watching her strange lodger. "'Come downstairs,' said Colonel Stukeley. "'You can do nothing for that unfortunate wretch.' "'I see you have been giving him brandy,' he added, pointing to an empty bottle and a glass on a chair beside the pallet. "'He begged so hard for it that I was obliged to get some for him,' answered the woman apologetically. "'How many bottles has he drunk since he has been here? You had better tell me the truth.' Three. No, I believe it is four, Mrs. Jaker replied meekly. She was quite overcome by that air of command which was an old habit of the colonel's. That means a bottle a day. I suppose you know that brandy is a deadly poison for a man in his state? No, indeed, sir. It was the only thing that kept him up. Don't you think that a doctor would have known better what was good for him? But you dared not send for a doctor. They had descended the stairs by this time, and the colonel and Mrs. Jaker were standing face to face in the lower room. The children, not seeing any prospect of a formal breakfast, had possessed themselves of sundry old crusts and stale slices from a chaotic cupboard, and had gone out into the windy garden to gnaw them, in the company of two or three nomad pigs. "'Now, Mrs. Jaker, let there be no nonsense between you and me,' said the colonel sternly. "'I want to save that young man if I can, and in saving him I will be able to save your husband, as in that young man's absence there will be no evidence against Jaker. 
if the detective comes here with his search warrants before that young man has got out of the way the whole story of how he came here and how jaker took the money from him will come out and both jaker and he will be transported for life a packet of banknotes stolen from the person is a more serious matter than a snared rabbit you know mrs jaker mrs jaker did know it she was trembling in every limb all that deep-eyed hypocrisy and artfulness by which she had hitherto contrived to hoodwink society deserted her at this crisis of her fates the colonel with a six feet two broad soldiers and soldierly chest bronzed countenance and fiercely curving grey moustache was the most terrible being she had ever looked upon she stood before him in fear and trembling and in her agony she told him the actual truth jaker had been out very late that night it was the night after the races he had won a few shillings on true blue not ten pounds sir no that was a falsehood and he stopped drinking at the coach and horses till after twelve o'clock the landlord had to run him out him and some others the other men lived in the village, so Jaker had to come home alone. It is a good two mile from the village, and he'd have to pass the park, as you know, sir. There's a right of way in the daytime, sir, but not after the gates are shut. Yes, yes, I know. But Jaker was never one to stop for gates, so he got over the fence and crossed the park. It would save him a good half mile. He had got nearly over to the other side, where there's a gate into the narrow lane that leads right onto the Harborough Road, close against our own lane, when he heard someone groaning. It was so dark that he couldn't tell at first where the groans came from, but when he groped about a bit he found a man lying under a tree, dying as he thought. He had a little bottle of spirits in his pocket that he was bringing home from my rheumatic shoulder, and he forced some of that down the man's throat. It brought him to life, and he asked Jaker if he could find him a shelter for the night anywhere, he didn't mind how humble, and he could afford to pay for it, as he'd got some money about him, poor as he looked. He had a wild sort of way of talking, Jaker said, and was all of a tremble. Jaker offered to take him to the coach and horses, and knock the landlord up and get him a bed, but the man would not have that. He wanted to go where nobody would know anything about him. Oh, says my husband, I understand, you're hiding. He didn't say yes, nor he didn't say no. So then Jaker offers to take him to our own cottage, and he says, yes, that would do very well, and I can get off by the rail early tomorrow. So Jaker helps him over the gate and brings him home, and we makes him up a bed in the room upstairs. But when the bed was made, it was hard work to get him to go to it. He sat over the fire and talked, 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 so fast and so wild-like, and he offered my husband a sovereign to go and get him a bottle of brandy, and we could hardly make him understand that it was the middle of the night, and that the public houses were shut. He was dreadfully wild, but Jaker got him up to bed at last, almost carried him as if he had been a child. And when did Jaker find out about the money? asked the colonel. It was the next day. The young man was in a very low way till he got the brandy. He cried and said he wished he was dead, and took on dreadfully. But when my husband had fetched a bottle of brandy from the village, and he had drunk the best part of it, he cheered up a little. I made some broth for him in the afternoon, but he would hardly touch it, and he wouldn't take tea or anything I offered him except brandy. He finished the bottle before night, and he was very abusive when my husband refused to get him another. In the evening he went off into a wild state, and raved about something he had under his pillow, a treasure he called it, and he laughed and said his mother had been very mean to him, but that he had got the best of the bargain. His mother, repeated the colonel wonderingly, what could he mean by that? And then he reflected that in a paroxysm of delirium tremens, all man's words are alike meaningless and unworthy of consideration. While my husband was sitting smoking his pipe beside the bed, the young man took the packet from under his pillow, and Jaker saw that it was a roll of banknotes. The young man counted them over and talked about the money and what he was going to do with it, as wild as any madman, and it seemed as if, for half a farthing, he'd have put the notes in the candle and burned them all. "'Do you think I care for the money for its own sake?' said he. "'Not a bit. I shall drink and game it away, I dare say, before I am three months older.' And then Jaker thought what a shame it was that this madman should have all that money to spend in drink and cards, or perhaps to set a light to it when the wild fit was on him, money enough to take us all to Canada, where we'd been planning to go for the last ten years, and to buy us a bit of land, and start us in an honest life. And so, late in the night, when the young man had gone off into a restless sleep, he never sleeps above a quarter of an hour at a time, Jaker puts his hand softly under his pillow, and stole the notes. 
No, sir, he took out the packet and looked through the notes, and took half of them, leaving most of the small ones. He took two fifties and five twenties, just enough for our passage money, and to buy a little land over there, and he went off early next morning. Did you know of any ship sailing for Canada? asked the colonel. Yes, there was one that was to sail from Plymouth yesterday, and he was in a fever to start by it. Plymouth and yesterday, Mr. Penwin will be a day after the fair, thought the colonel. Did your lodger find out that he'd been robbed? he asked presently. Lord, no, sir. He counted the notes over and over again next day in a stupid way, like a man half asleep, and he seemed at first to think that there was something wrong. He missed my husband, too, but when I fetched him his little bottle of brandy, he was quite content. Your husband is dead, he said. I believe I shot him. Late at night he had a wild fit, and thought the police were after him, and waved and went on dreadful, crying out that he should be hung for murder, just as his father was hung for murder before him. No, he says. They didn't hang my father. He was mad, and they locked him up. This fairly startled the colonel. Why, this was Stuart Mackenzie's story. What could it mean? Could this young man be— No, the notion was too wild, too horrible. And then, it was so idle to attach significance of any kind to the ravings of a maddened drunkard. In any case, there is one thing needful to be done, a thing not easy to be done, and that was to get this young man out of the way before Penwin appeared upon the scene. How was this thing to be accomplished? This man must be conveyed away, into some safe shelter, but where and how? Force might be needful to remove him, and a vehicle of some kind— Yet how could the colonel dare to hire a vehicle in the village where every one had been put upon the qui vive by the bills offering a reward for the apprehension of the robber? Any proceeding at all out of the common was sure to arouse curiosity and to be talked of all over the village. Secrecy and expedition were alike necessary. The colonel was fairly nonplussed. If we cannot get that man safely away from this house before eleven o'clock today, you are likely to spend the night in jail, he said to Mrs. Jaker, turning to her for aid in his desperation. She was shrewd and crafty, experienced and double-dealing. She saw her own danger, and she was prompt to face the situation. "'I know of an old barn where he could be comfortable enough for the day,' she said. "'You could get him away from there after dark.' "'Yes, of course I could do that. I could get a trap from a distance,' said the colonel. "'How far is your barn?' Ten minutes' walk.' "'Good. Then we must try to get him to go there quietly and of his own accord. I shall look to you to help me. To whom did this barn belong, by the way, and now can you be sure that no one will go there before night?' "'It belongs to Mr. Somerton, who rents the next farm,' answered Mrs. Jaker. "'He uses it in summer for some of Squire Colchester's hunters, "'but it is empty all of the winter, and no one goes near it for weeks at a stretch. "'I don't think there's any fear of anybody going there today.' "'We must risk it, at any rate,' said the Colonel. "'You had better stay down here, and be ready to go with me when I bring the young man downstairs.' "'I don't think you'll get him to budge,' Mrs. Jaker said, doubtfully. "'But the Colonel had faith in himself. "'He had been called upon to deal with a species of lunacy before today.' He had sublime patience, and he knew that if anybody could manage a maniac, he could do it. He went upstairs again. The young man who called himself Kamalak was lying in a listless attitude with his eyes half-closed. The colonel stood in the doorway for some minutes observing him. The face was handsome, even in its ruin. Pale, cadaverous, thin and wasted as it was, there were traces of exceptional beauty in the delicately chiseled features, the perfect proportions of chin and cheek and brow, the rich mass of wavy black hair, the silken lashes and finely penciled eyebrows, just the kind of face to catch a schoolgirl's fancy, to dazzle as the countenance of a demigod. Nor was there any doubt that the man looked like a gentleman. Those slender white hands, lying on the patchwork coverlet, were hands that never toiled. They had shaken the dice-box often enough, and handled the billiard cue, but they had never labored for bread. Colonel Stukely shut the door sharply, and the sick man started up, looking at him, scared and flurried and eager. "'Are they here?' he asked." "'Yes,' answered the colonel at a venture. "'They have hunted you down. "'Get up and put on your boots. "'I'll get you out of their way if I can.' "'The young man got up and staggered across the room. "'He was too weak to move steadily, "'and then he sank into a broken-down chair "'and sat looking about him vaguely. "'The boots were in a corner, dilapidated, worn-down dress boots. "'The mud had been roughly wiped off them "'with a wisp of straw, and that was all. "'The colonel picked them up and looked at them "'before he handed them to their owner. 
Yes, they would have made just those prints which the detective had shown him on the flower beds. There was a small heel, worn to the quick upon one side, the straight, narrow sole and pointed toe, a French bootmaker's masterpiece. Kamalak put on the boots, looking up at the colonel with a suspicious air as he did so. How do I know that you're not one of them, he said. Do I look like a policeman? You don't, but that doesn't matter. You may have something to do with them all the same. I am Grace Darnell's godfather, and I am here to save you. Grace? She sent you, then, and she does care for me still. Her letters have been devilish colds for the last six months. I began to think she wanted to throw me over. There is no time to talk of that now. If those men get hold of you... Yes. Are they downstairs? How am I to get away without their seeing me? Mrs. Jaker will keep them talking in the back room while you and I slip out by the front door. Where are you going to take me? The colonel explained his plan. He would get a trap at Darnell Park and pick Kamalak up at the barn a little after dusk. It should be a trap that he could drive himself, and he would take the young man to the station and thence ship him off for London under the charge of his own valet, a man who might be trusted. What the valet was to do with the young man when he got him to London was a point which the colonel had not yet had time to consider, but it was a question which must be answered before the evening. Kamalak was not easily managed. At one moment he was white with terror at the thought of those men below, believing in them firmly, and in the next moment he doubted their existence and was afraid of the colonel. He knelt down by the pallet presently, and took the packet of notes from under his pillow, and thrust it inside his ragged shirt. He did this in a secret way, glancing furtively at the colonel all the time. "'How do I know that you don't mean to rob me?' he muttered. "'I have missed some money already in this house. I believe it is a den of thieves.' "'If you suspect me, I had better wish you good morning,' said the colonel. This threw the wretch into a panic of fear and self-abasement. He flung his arms around the colonel's neck. He entreated him to keep off those devils who wanted to drag him away and hang him. I didn't mean to kill him, he said. I shot him without thinking. The pistol was there, don't you know, ready to my hand, as if Satan himself had put it in my way. Save me, save me, hide me. I am not a murderer. Be quick, then, said the colonel decisively. There is no time for fooling. If you want to escape those men, you must not lose an instant. He went downstairs, and Kamalak followed him like a beaten hound. You've got the policeman out of the way, said the colonel, winking at Mrs. Jaker. That was clever of you. And now come and show us the way to this barn. He put the young man's arm through his, and led him out into the garden. Kamalak was in a pitiable state of weakness, and could not have gone three steps without help. But the fresh morning air revived him a little, and he was able to get over the ground, supported and helped by the colonel. The barn was in sight, across a couple of fields. They skirted these open fields, keeping close to the hedgerows, where there was a hard, well-beaten track, and where their feet would leave no perceptible traces. It was a large, airy building, old but substantially built, with great heavy rafters and patches of open sky showing here and there through the great dark roof. "'Why, this is Noah's Ark,' cried Kamalak. What a rotten old hulk. We shall be wrecked in the first storm. There was some straw in a corner. Kamalak flung himself down upon it. The colonel took off his heavy ulster and spread it over the shivering wretch. Get through the day quietly here. Sleep if you can, and I'll come to fetch you at dusk, said the colonel. I can't get on without brandy, answered the other. You can bring me a bottle, he said to Mrs. Jaker, handing her a sovereign from his waistcoat pocket. The young man's possession of this gold puzzled the colonel, but he concluded that the Jakers had changed one of his notes for him, albeit Mrs. Jaker had not mentioned that fact in her confession just now. "'She shall take care of you,' said the colonel. "'But remember, you are in constant peril of being arrested, as long as you remain in the neighborhood of Darnell Park. So you had better keep as quiet as you possibly can till I come to fetch you.' And with this injunction, Colonel Stukely left him. There was no lock to the barn door, and he found a primitive and ingenious way of fastening it outside by means of a bit of wood and a strip of iron, which he twisted under and over the latch, so as to render it a difficult matter for Mr. Kamalak to get out. As they went back to the lane, the colonel gave Mrs. Jaker her instructions. "'You are to bring him no raw brandy,' he said, "'unless you want to hasten his death. You must get a couple of pounds of beef and make some beef tea, as strong as you know how to make it. You can put half a wine glass of brandy in a breakfast cup of beef tea, and try to get him to drink that.' 
He is in a terribly low state, and will die from exhaustion unless he takes some kind of nourishment. The colonel could not help thinking within himself that it would be a very good thing for Grace and everybody else if this young adventurer were to die, but as an honest, God-fearing man, Weldon Stukely knew that it was his duty to try and save him. He walked home quickly, not much the worse for the sacrifice of his ulster, though it was a sharp October morning. He entered the hall with the air of a man who had been for a stroll in the gardens just as the eight-day clock was striking nine. No gong sounded for meals in this time of trouble. All noises in the house were hushed, save the musical chime of the clocks. Dora Darnell was coming downstairs with her key basket on her arm like a jailer. "'What is the last report?' asked the colonel when he had wished her good morning. "'The night nurse says there is an improvement, but I am always afraid to trust these people,' added Dora, as if all hirelings were vipers. "'However, Mr. Fredrickson was to be here today, and we shall get to the truth from him.' "'Has Penward started on his mission yet?' asked the colonel, trying to seem careless. "'He went out at eight this morning.' "'Good,' thought the colonel. "'It must be ten before he can be at Mrs. Jaker's with the warrant.' The famous London surgeon was to be at Darnall at eleven that day, and was to extract the bullet if he saw his way to performing that operation safely. Lady Darnall knew that this day was to be one of crisis in her husband's fate. Before the day was over, she would know, perhaps, whether he was to be spared or lost to her, whether joy or despair was to be her portion. She waited the issue in a silent agony. She would not leave her room except to creep into the corridor and crouch listening on the ground outside her husband's door. She would see no one except nurses and doctor. The nurse's favourable account of last night was the first gleam of hope. "'You think he will get better now?' she said, clasping the woman's hand. "'You believe that we shall save him?' "'I couldn't undertake to say so much as that, my lady, "'but Sir Alan certainly had a much quieter night,' the woman answered calmly. "'When Mr. Fredrickson and the local doctor came upstairs, "'they found Lady Darnall standing in the corridor, "'neatly dressed in her grey cloth gown and linen collar, "'beautiful, calm as a statue, "'but there was a strange look about her eyes and forehead, "'a restlessness in the muscles of the mouth, "'which told the great surgeon how her nerves were racked, "'her mind distracted by fear.' The two medical men were closeted in the sick room for more than an hour, Lady Darnall and Grace and Dora waiting in the corridor all the time. They stood in a little group at the further end of the corridor, not daring to be near the sick room lest they should be in the way at some critical moment. Both the nurses were in attendance. Everything had been prepared for the operation. There was no rushing in and out. There were no sudden unforeseen requirements, no confusion. There was only intense and agonizing anxiety for those who watched and listened without. At last, the door opened. Lady Darnall rushed toward it, white as death. She met the famous surgeon, a man of tall, commanding figure, a man who looked a tower of strength in the hour of calamity. Her lips moved as she looked up at him appealingly, but no sound came from them. "'Do not agitate yourself, my dear Lady Darnall. Everything has gone most favorably. We have extracted the bullet. There is every reason for hopefulness.' "'Praise be to God,' she cried fervently. "'May I go to my husband? May I stay with him and help them to nurse him?' "'Not yet, Lady Darnall. It is more than ever necessary that he should be kept quiet.' but I am pining to see him. It has been such a weary time. I should be so quiet. I believe he would be happier if I were there. Has he not asked for me? He is hardly conscious at present. The fever is much abated, the delirium much milder, but he is not in his right senses yet. When he is, he will be sure to ask for you. Unless he is strangely changed, said Claire with a touch of bitterness. She knew not what trouble might wait for her in the future, even when her dear one was snatched from the jaws of death. He must be kept very quiet. He must see no one except his nurses for the next few days. We have every reason to believe that all will go well. Every reason, murmured the local authority. But in such a critical case, there is no such thing as certainty. The uttermost care will be required, said Mr. Fredrickson. This was all, but, oh, how much it was to be able to hope. After breakfast, the colonel had an interview with his valet, and between them they made out a plan for the disposal of Victor de Camelot. The valet had an old mother, he spoke of her as an accident in his life, who lived in a pretty little street off Islington Green, who let lodgings to single gentlemen. 
There had been a dearth of single gentlemen lately, or rather the supply had all been absorbed by the musical families who had tennis lawns and bathrooms and agreeable daughters and who eked out Somerset House incomes by partial boarding single gentlemen, so that the valet's old mother had to bemoan the emptiness of her rooms. She cooks for them and does for them better than they can be done in their own shabby genteel musical families, said the valet, but they're all alike, taken by a bit of show, a few flowers and falals about the room, and a young lady to play the piano to them. It was settled that Nicholas, the valet, should take Comalock to his mother's house, hire a nurse for him, call in a doctor, and put him in a fair way of recovery. The colonel had his own ideas about getting the young man out of England so soon as he should be well enough to be put on board ship, but there was no occasion to discuss those ideas with Nicholas. End of chapter 12